Paul Simon was at the beginning of his, his career. His star was just beginning to rise when he was uh, going through a series of one-night gigs in and around the London area, uh, sometimes up into to northern England. The story is told that he was in a train station after just playing one of these gigs, feeling down, missing his girlfriend especially, his friend Art Garfunkel, and their extended friends that felt like family, when he took out a, a piece of paper and wrote the words, homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound, home where my love lies waiting silently for me. In the interview I, uh, where I read about this story, he, he said that he doesn't really like the song. Have, have you noticed that's kind of a theme for him? <laughs> the, in, in the first sermon, back in the, the first Sunday of, of August, uh, which was Bridge Over Troubled Water, he, he, I found a quote from him saying he's been unhappy with the, most of his music, most of his career. And he, he's dealt with envy and jealousy of his friend Art Garfunkel, who in the 70s became something of a, of a movie star. And he's never quite felt like his... He lived up to the accolades that he was receiving. It's, it's a negative voice that seems to constantly talk to him, telling him you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not talented enough, you're, you're not successful enough. Anybody have a voice like that at all that speaks to you? It, it's kind of sad in a sense. I, I've seen some recent interviews with Mr. Simon where he is talking now about life and death and what happens next. He, he doesn't confess any sort of deep, profound faith, but he asks a lot of the same questions that we're asking. Was my life worth it? Was it worth living? What, what is God? Will God, if there is one, welcome me home? And you can hear the roots of those wonderings in his 80s now. And yes, I felt old when I realized that Paul Simon is 81. You can hear the roots of those one wonderings in that song, Homeward Bound, that singular desire to finally, fully and completely be at home. But I, I wonder if he's ever really made it since that voice is so loud, that voice, that critical voice is so strong in, in his mind. It's, it's Brene Brown who gives advice on what to do with that, with that voice. She says you should name it. Give it a name so that you can talk back to it. Her negative voice is gremlin. So whenever that voice pops up, she says, listen, gremlin, here's why you don't know what you're talking about. I have a negative voice in my head. In fact, most of the pre preachers that I know are constantly dealing with self-doubt. Teachers, performers, musicians, frankly, most of us have that voice, don't we? I've given mine a name, which I will not share. <laughs> not because it's obscene, but maybe. And I tell that voice quite often, it's time to be quiet and go away. Brene's, Brene's so right about that. If we can name that voice, we at least have a chance to take on whatever monster it may be. I wonder also if we might share a verse with, with Paul Simon. He, he was born and raised in, in, in the, uh, uh, Judaism. Uh, he was, he was uh, bar mitzvahed. But that's about where his religious life ended. I wonder if we could remind him of the book of Ecclesiastes. You know the verse, the one that says, you came from dust and you will return to dust. It's a famous verse. Many people know it. It's one we hear around the uh, Ash Wednesday services quite often. It speaks of our mortality, that we have but one life to live. We're born, we live, and we die. You came from dust and you'll return to dust. It's the great preacher Otis Moss, though, 
who says dust is an imperfect tool, an in, imperfect mechanism for creating something. Whenever you're building something, dust gets everywhere. Have anybody ever renovated a home? Ever done anything like that? We, we redid our kitchen. Of course, the contractor, when we're getting close to finishing our kitchen, came to us and said, I think you need to work on the living room too. And fact, frankly, the dining room doesn't look nice either. So we, we, we did all three of those rooms and it cost us a lot more money than we originally thought. And then for three months, we were covered constantly in what? Everywhere, dust on the furniture, dust on the floor, dust on our clothes, dust in our skin, in our hair, uh, in Julie's hair. Uh, we, had, we, had, we had dust everywhere. Do you remember when we were building this, this new sanctuary? We had a big sign right here at the entrance to the parking lot that said, pardon our dust. Pastor Otis, who's a great preacher, he's going to be here, by the way, in April. I'm happy to announce that. Says what we ought to do is maybe make a sign for ourselves that say, pardon my dust. I even wondered, I wish I would have thought about this sooner, if, it, if we'd handed out name tags today, where you could write your name so we could see each other and know each other by name, and right across the bottom of that name tag, print it, pre-print it, pardon my dust. Because every one of us is made from that imperfect material. And because God is constantly working on us, constantly renewing us, constantly dealing with whatever issues or mistakes or, or, or challenges we have in our lives, we are going to be, at least metaphorically, covered in dust. The problem comes when we try to pretend like we don't have dust. The problem comes when we avoid our own dustiness and we get really good at pointing out the dust of other people. Have you ever done that? Don't raise your hand, but have you ever done that before? I saw two hands go up. <laughs> you ever stood at the water cooler, at the coffee pot, lunchroom? kitchen. You seen what she's doing? Do you know about him? We get really good at looking at other people's dust, and the problem is we don't deal with our own. And sometimes, especially when things get especially dusty, we, we think we can fix it by taking charge and taking control and, and taking command. There's a story about a man, a married man who was out on a business trip. Came home after three days. Next morning, his wife said, uh, I'm glad you're home. Would you like me to take your suit in and have it dry cleaned? He said, oh, that, that would be great. He grabbed a quick cup of coffee, a breakfast roll, and went on back to the, to the office that day. She took the suit into the dry cleaners, but she checked the pants first to make sure that all the pockets were empty, and she found a note from a woman, and it was clear he was having an affair. She dropped off the suit, went back home, few minutes before he was scheduled to arrive around 5.30, she sat down at the kitchen table and she put that note right in front of her chair. He walked in, he saw the note, he knew immediately that she knew. He said, I'll be back in a few hours, and he immediately left. Came back three hours later, driving a shiny, brand new, top-of-the-line BMW. Beautiful car. He called her out to the driveway. He held out the keys before her, and, and he said, I know you've been talking about this car for months now. I decided it was time to finally get it for you. I know you've been wanting it. It's time to get Here are the keys. She shook her head, turned her back, and walked away. Months later, after the divorce was final, she was having a glass of wine with some friends. She said, you know, I could have forgiven him the affair, but I couldn't forgive that damn car.
He thought, he thought he could take control, take charge, take command, just get her a shiny new car and everything would go away. What she wanted, what she probably would have allowed him to somehow work through the dust and the mess and the chaos that he created by having the affair was a chance to begin again, to renew again, to forgive him and start the relationship again. Maybe the problem is we can't admit to our own dust, to our own need, to admit that we're covered in dust, whatever the issue may be for you or for, for me. You know, Paul Simon acknowledges that this song, it's not one of his favorites, but he acknowledges that it's true. It, he said, I was very naive, I was very young, it seems kind of silly now looking back, but it was actually, and this is his phrase, a snapshot in time. In that moment, what I wrote was true. It was a snapshot of my life and where I was at that time. I like that idea that it, was a, that it was a snapshot, that it was a picture of where he was in the moment. And that also tells us something about the, the reason this song is such a classic, why it's so uh, an iconic member of the, the Simon and Garfunkel collection, as it were, is that even though it was just a snapshot from his moment in life, that moment in his life, there's something true about the desire to go home for all of us, isn't there? There, there's something that all of us know, that, that feeling of when disease or death or disaster or, or something relatively minor comes along, what, what do you want? You want to go home. I, I want to be home with my friends, my family, where I know I'm loved and, and accepted for who I am, where they have to take me in no matter what because that's where I find myself finally at home. My favorite poet is, is David White. And my favorite book of, of poetry by him is called the, the House of Belonging. If you're into poetry, I would highly recommend it. He gave a mini lecture about his book not, not too long ago, and he said that to feel a sense of belonging is to experience something of a human triumph. I, I love that idea, that to experience belonging. Notice, it's not about success or wealth or fame or anything else, just that sense of belonging is to experience triumph. And then he goes on to say, and I want you to hear this longer quote. Let's put it up here on the screen. It's interesting to think that no matter how far you are from yourself, no matter how exiled you feel from your contribution to the rest of the world or to society as a human being, all you have to do is enumerate exactly, listen to this part here, exactly the way you don't feel at home in the world. And the moment you've uttered the exact dimensionality of your exile, you're already taking the path back to the way, back to the place you should be. You're already on your way home. When you acknowledge your exile, when you acknowledge that you feel like I'm just lost, I'm wandering, I'm not anywhere close to being at home, that's the step that has turned you back in that direction, to home, to a sense of belonging, to a place where the world is right, no matter how much it might be swirling and chaotic and all around you on the outside, there in that place, you are at peace. Back in April, when I began working on this, this sermon series, I determined that Homeward Bound was, would be just right for the, final, for the final song of the series, for the final sermon uh, of, of this collection of, of sermons. After all, that's what I just said. That's what David White just said. Once you've turned your way toward home, you, you are on the way to a sense of belonging. <clears throat> uh, I'm probably the only person under this tent who listened to the song Homeward Bound and thought about the Old Testament book of Numbers. 
I, I may be the only person in the history of the world <laughs> who thought of the, it's called the Aaronic Blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you and make God's face to shine upon you both now and forevermore. And may God give you peace. It's a beautiful text. It's called the Aaronic Blessing. Uh, people who have seminary degrees come up with fancy titles like that to make you think we're smart. It, it just, it's reference to Moses' brother Aaron, who is the chief priest of Israel. It's a, to coin a phrase, a snapshot from a moment in time. You see, the, the Israelites are still wandering in the wilderness. They still haven't made it to the promised land. They've been there now for years, for even decades trying to make their way to the land that God has promised them. And if you remember, in the earliest days of their escape from slavery, they whined to Moses a lot. When we were slaves, it wasn't great, but at least we had food, and at least we had water, and at least we had a roof over our heads. At least there was some security in the streets. Now we're out here in the desert. We don't have food. We don't have water. The sun is beating down on us, running into different uh, uh, countries that are attacking us. It's awful. That's, that's how it began, but things finally calmed down. And we get to this snapshot from this moment in time when everything is right, when the blessing is made real. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. And may God's face shine upon you. It's meant to evoke the rising of the sun, piercing the darkness, bringing light to the day, bringing light to their lives. God's face is like the sun rising, shining brightly on us. And may God give you peace forevermore. You know the Hebrew word for peace, don't you? Shalom. It means more, though, than the absence of war. Peace means a sense of security, a sense of freedom, a sense, a sense of friendship, of longevity, of family. At this moment, oh, things will turn south again. It'll be difficult before they finally do get to the promised land. But at this moment, they've found that place. That place named home, where God's face is shining, where the light has pierced the darkness, and there's no amount of disease or divorce or death that can get in the way of that simple moment at home in the arms of God. The disciples in John chapter 14, they may be quite disturbed. Frankly, they don't feel like they're at home. They are at that moment where their teacher has acknowledged his life is in danger, and they've got to be thinking. They've got to be thinking, if Jesus' life is in danger, what's going to happen to us? If this one named Lord and Savior, this one who has brought healing and wholeness to the world, this one who brings life to those on the edges, on the margins, if he's in danger, what's going to happen to us? In, in, in one of the translations that I, that I love, Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. The message said, don't be rattled. It's, it's, not, it's not a sense of, of understanding that you should sweep your emotions underneath the stage or the carpet. It's not an idea that you should just push all your sadness, your sorrow, your grief away. No, no, no. Name those things. But don't let that be the end of where you are. Don't be troubled. It's actually written in a command-like tone. It's a command to no matter what is happening around, the, around you, Believe, it says in one translation, believe in me, believe in God. The, the translation that, that Tracy read is better. It says, trust in me, Jesus says. Trust in God. It's not about believing certain theological things. If you go to a fundamentalist church and you want to join that church, they'll make you sign a statement of faith that you believe all these things. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, trust. 
in the way of God, in the way of shalom, in the beauty and the goodness of home. And you will finally, no matter what, belong. But one last thing. Sometimes life just comes at us too hard, doesn't it? Sometimes it just feels like we've been knocked down and we're never going to be able to stand back up. Sometimes it just, we just want to throw up our hands and, and give up. I, I love the song, and we sing it all the time in the Common Grace Band, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. It's a beautiful gospel hymn. I love the line. There's a line in there that says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. When I'm wandering away, when I'm lost, it's God that comes looking for me. It's God that comes looking for you. That's the great promise. But sometimes we'd rather just wander and get away. Sometimes we're already home and we don't know it. Maybe that's the hardest thing, is to open our mind, our eyes, our hearts, and our souls wide enough to look around and see that God is already there. We're already at home. There was a mom and a dad who had a little boy who was born angry. He just was angry all the time. Fought with mom, argued with dad, Started kindergarten, got in fights and arguments with the teacher, was in trouble all the time in school, continued on into first grade. They, they sought out help from doctors and therapists and pastors and teachers, and it just, nothing seemed to work. One night, dad came home late, been at a couple of dinner meetings. It's about 9.45. The house was completely dark, quiet. No TV on, nothing. Poured himself a glass of wine and walked down the hallway gently pushed open his son's bedroom door and saw his wife sitting on the edge of the bed. Their son is sound asleep and she's just gently stroking his hair, just gently. She sees her husband and she smiles and pats her son on the shoulder, pulls the cover up, quietly walks out of the room, closes the door gently behind her. They go and have a seat in the family room. He said, what was, what's happening? She said, he won't let me love him during the day. So I love him at night. I just want him to know he's at home. Homeward bound. Home where my love lies silently waiting for me. I wish I was homeward bound. Maybe all we need to do is open our eyes, hearts, minds, souls, and ears and listen closely for the voice of God saying to you and to me, you're home. You're home in the arms of love. Let us pray. God, we're grateful for the way music speaks to our soul, the way it can evoke from us emotion and longing and yearning for the things that matter the most in life. Help us to not only silence that critical voice in our minds, but to hear yours, hear your voice, gently speaking to us across all of eternity. Come home. Come home to the arms of love. Amen.